Welcome to AEC Marketing for Principals, brought to you by Smartages, where we help design and construction firms navigate sales and leverage marketing to win more projects. Here are your hosts, Katie Cash and Judy Sparks. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the AEC Marketing for Principals podcast, where we are talking about all things marketing as they relate to the design and construction industry and how to effectively sell and market to owners. I'm your host, Katie Cash, and as always, I am joined by my partner in strategy, Miss Judy Sparks, the founder and president of Smartages, a marketing agency that focuses exclusively on the design and construction space. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most common questions that we get in the marketplace and some of the most common points of confusion that we see professionals um, stumble across. And that is this idea of what is sales, what is marketing, and what in the world is this term called business development that we hear all across the industry. And so today we're going to talk about the difference between the three of them, um, how they're used interchangeably, which causes this level of confusion, and then also why there is a role for each of them to play as you build your brand um, project by project and across the industry as a whole. So I just want to cut right to the chase. And, you know, Judy, you spent a great deal of time, you know, coming up in the industry, starting in marketing, transitioning to what we refer to as the dark side of sales, but then coming back to the marketing side. So I don't think that there is anyone in a better position than you to set the record straight on what is the difference between sales and marketing and business development. Thanks, Katie. And yes, there is a difference. And yes, I am eager to tell you about it. I think that this is one of the Um, If I were to have a pet peeve, this would be it. When people use the terms sales and marketing interchangeably. Now, I know if you Google what is the difference between sales and marketing, there are a lot of really great answers out there. But, you know, I am a big subscriber to the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid. And this is how I define the difference. One is sales are things that people do one-to-one. So if you request a meeting and you go meet with a prospective client, that is sales. If you cold call, that is sales. Things that you're doing one-to-one qualify as sales. You take a client or prospect out for a round of golf. You go to dinner. You, you know, meet for a cup of coffee at a trade show. Those are sales activities. What I call marketing are the things that you do one-to-many. So... When you think about the one in terms of marketing, it's not a, an individual, it's your brand. So how are you broadcasting and elevating visibility for your brand in a way that reaches the masses? So when you think about your website, when you think about any of your outbound marketing pushes or your inbound marketing content, when you think about reaching the masses of your target audience, that is what I classify as marketing, one to many. So let's talk about this business development language. This is my favorite. In our industry, business development usually is synonymous with this idea of not hard selling, but relationship building. But in my humble opinion, BD, business development, it's just a polite way of saying sales. So I think it's perfectly acceptable for sales and business development to be used interchangeably, but marketing is a standalone 
um, activity, and it is actually a very different skill set um, than to be successful compared to what you need to be successful at sales. So appreciate you setting the record straight. We do hear that all the time, sales and marketing being used interchangeably, this whole idea of, you know, professional architects, engineers, or contractors feeling like there's a negative connotation to being uh, named a salesman. And so they wanted to be very professional. They want to be consultative. So this emergence of the business developer came through from that. Uh, What else can you kind of add to that discussion? Well, I'll say the business development, um, those titles have gotten very creative. You see client services manager or project development director. At the end of the day, I still say at how you are measured uh, is by how much revenue you can bring to the firm. And at the end of the day, that is at the heart of the definition of sales. Now, I will tell you, Katie, that I'm seeing a big shift in the industry really in the last few years. Um, this industry, the design and construction industry, what I love about it is that it's a relationship business. Everybody knows that it is really, really important that professionals build relationships and build trust with their target audiences because it's unreasonable to think that a building owner or an institution or a governmental entity will entrust your firm with millions of dollars without a relationship. Now, I understand that a lot of people say, oh, that relationship thing, I'm just not a schmoozer. I can't go whining and dining people. And I would argue that that's not necessarily necessary, but it is helpful for buyers of your service to A, have heard of you, B, say, you know, I've heard of that brand. I don't know anybody there, but I think that I have confidence in that brand because it's not unknown. So as the buying audience is getting younger and the practicing service provider is also getting younger, communication is happening differently. And a lot of that has to do with the way that they were brought up, the way that technology has played a role in their lives where we're starting to see a big shift between that gray-haired principal whose name is on the door, who over 40 years has built relationships with developers, has built relationships with healthcare institutions, has built relationships with state agencies, and, and, and through those relationships and coupled with doing excellent work has led to more projects. We're starting to see a shift. And the reason why is because the buying audience is getting younger and the service providers are, you know, approaching retirement and the next generation of leadership does not have the same Rolodex. So it's become a brand war, essentially. I would also argue that, you know, just as technology has changed the way that we live and work everywhere else, it has impacted our industry as well. And the the one thing that stands out to me that I learned, you know, earlier in my career is that professional services, be it architecture, engineering, construction, program management services, those services aren't necessarily sold. You know, you don't sell those services. They are bought. And when people, I don't care who you are, if you're representing a healthcare organization, um, K-12 school district, uh, a large aviation firm, the number one emotion that people buy products or services from is 
you know, through trust in our industry. And so I think that that is really playing into the the brandscape, as you will, as, as our industry transitions away from being a sales culture to a marketing culture. And you start seeing these more proactive, intentional messaging to communicate trust. And like you mentioned, confidence and competence in terms of that area of service expertise, maybe industry, maybe the, the nuance of the project type itself. And that's coming across through other communication channels, not so much by knocking door to door and taking people golfing or out to dinner or to drinks like it used to be uh, in previous generations. Well, Katie, I think that's exactly right. And um, trust is a huge factor. I do think that um, the other thing that is very real in today's uh, competitive landscape is that everybody has specialized. And so this idea that you can sell your services um, based on the premise of technical preeminence, um, that is really hard to do. So you can't really argue my engineer is smarter than his engineer or my architect is better yeah. than his architect. So um, I think that having a strong brand really becomes prominent in the buyer's journey when looking for a professional service provider simply because of, you know, the old saying, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM, right? So when you have a buyer of professional services and you feel that everybody has an equal resume and you are in a position to entrust, using your words, entrust millions of dollars um, with an organization um, you're going to be measuring who do I trust in this endeavor and where am I taking the minimum amount of risk? And so these buyers have to be able to form an opinion about their team and the brand that their teams work for and know that, you know, the same thought process that we as consumers use in our private lives do come into, uh, does come into play in our business lives. For example, there are certain stores that we shop at that we have confidence when we shop there because we know that they stand by the quality of the goods that they sell and they know, we know that it's a hassle-free return policy. There are certain brands in the industry that have reputations of being very uh, contract-driven, very transactionally-based firms, but if it's not in the contract, we're not doing it. Or if it is in the contract, we are entitled to it. There is very little flexibility. There are firms, I think everyone that's listening today can think of one or two or 10 firms that would fit in that category. There are other firms where they really manage their uh, branded experience. And at the end of the day, they do have a contract that at the end of the day, they really put the relationship between their buyer and their brand um, at a higher level of importance than the contract terms. So we know those companies out there that are known for providing a superior level of customer service, um, even if it's not spelled out in their scope. And so when people think about brand, it's not limited to just the identity or the logo. It's the entire experience a buyer has um, throughout his journey of awareness, consideration, and decision. Um, to choose your firm over another firm. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, this whole idea of, you know, we, we talk to owners all the time, public sector and private sector alike. And you're right, they are finding ways to view these, you know, potential service providers for them to, to weigh on in terms of which one is going to provide a better customer experience for them, which one might be the low risk, which one might provide the best, best product or the, be the most creative. And what we're hearing from them is that they are they're exercising this trust but verify methodology utilizing what's at their fingertips. So when they're getting proposals on their projects, um, they are matching up those resumes with the individual's LinkedIn profiles to see if the data matches. They are looking at the project sheets and seeing if they can read reviews about those online. And we're starting to see them uh, really look and kind of take that consumer mindset. Hey, before I go eat at this restaurant, I want to look it up on Yelp and see what it looks like. They're doing that for professional service firms. And, you know, it's starting to blur the lines between what those really, really big firms are and your local boutique firm is, you know, the, the level playing field is kind of, you know, come down where everybody, like you mentioned, everybody has a relationship. And a lot of these cases, everybody has the resume. So, you know, they start thinking about, Who's going to be easiest to work with? You know, which one fits in my budget better? Maybe which one can get me in my facility quicker as they're starting to evaluate these firms? Um, and which brand can I hide behind that minimizes my, my risk? And I know I just made that sound really, really <laughs> unethical, but I think it's actually really smart. If you are working for a large healthcare system and they have a billion dollar healthcare program and your job is to execute the the development of a new campus for this healthcare system, you really don't want to be the guy who wasn't able to deliver, right? And so you are going to consider who is that trusted brand that at the end of the day, they are not going to treat this as a transactional relationship, that they are going to be a great partner. And so I think the best brands out there and the the strongest brands. And this is, I keep using the terminology brand because brand is very much associated with the idea of marketing, not necessarily the idea of sales. So brand management, brand positioning, brand voice, brand promise, those are all of the things that have to be developed very intentionally by a company and communicated effectively to your audiences. Those um, brands out there that do a really good job uh, performing and always delivering as promised are the ones that usually get picked for those high-profile, high-risk projects. And I think that at the end of the day, if everything's equal, and we actually validated this in our 2017 survey of um, institutional clients who said the number one thing they look at is, do you have experience in my building type when hiring a firm? And the number two factor they consider is the strength of your brand. So those brands out there that are taking a bigger proactive position in um, instituting a marketing-centric culture within their firms where they are intentionally and deliberately managing their brand message are actually proven to gain greater market share than those that are very um, one-off, you know, one relationship at a time sales-focused firms. I think um, as a marketer in our industry and having, having seen some changes through the years, one thing that I'm really excited about in this current shift that we're seeing 
is this idea where marketing is taking more of an active role on behalf of the brand. And we're starting to see technical professionals understand the role that marketing plays in helping to grow firms, you know, increase profitability, you know, broaden service footprint areas, you know, help with recruitment and all of that coming from the idea of, of marketing. And so, you know, when I first got into the industry, you know, we won't say when, but it's been a little while. Marketing was really reserved primarily for responding to RFPs and RFQs. It was purely reactive. It was putting together, you know, your answers to a standard set of questions in a very concise, persuasive, yet visually appealing way. Um, you know, slowly we've seen that grow to include, you know, we, we saw the emergence of a, of a big push towards internal communications, right? Um, a lot of firms grew and then shrunk during the economic downturn. And so there was a big focus on internal communication so that people were aware of what was going on within the firm, aware of what projects and what clients they were serving. And then now we're seeing, you know, these more traditional and in other industry tactics of marketing take place. And, you know, it's just funny for me to sit back and think, you know, how many times I've sat across the table from executives and from principals that sit there telling me, you know, no one's going to buy professional services from my website. Why do I need to keep it updated? Why do I need to do a new website every two years or every three or five, whatever your, your time period is? And then having the same conversation with them about, I don't get leads at trade shows, but if I don't go, they're going to think we're out of business. And for, you know, the marketer and me to sit here and know that brands in our space are adopting account-based marketing strategies where they are getting marketing qualified leads through those tactics and growing their brands is something that I'm super excited about as we continue to see marketing play a bigger role in our industry in a more thoughtful way. So, so Katie, let me just make sure I heard you right. Are you telling me that marketing departments and marketers in the design and construction industry are actually generating leads online and at trade shows to give to their seller doers to follow up on and their business development teams to follow up on? Are you suggesting that marketers in the design and construction industry are actually capable of reaching strangers and generating new project opportunities? Um, Yes. Um, it's so you mean funny. it happens like occasionally, like the lottery, or it's happening every day, everywhere? I, it is happening every day, everywhere with brands that are being very thoughtful and intentional in how they're approaching things. So we used to, in the industry, you know, go to a trade show, throw up a backdrop. We would put a fishbowl or a bucket or a basket on the table with a little sign, drop your business card for your chance to win. You guys have probably seen this at Moe's or any of the other quick service restaurants where you can drop your business card and win lunch for your group. That's what we used to call um, leads. <laughs> but when you, if you've ever been in that position where you get home after the trade show and you're sifting through all the business cards, one, half of them are from the other exhibitors that are not your target audience. And so you just wasted your time and maybe, you know, got a paper cut or two sifting through all those business cards. But the ones that, you know, do represent the brands of client organizations that you would want to serve, you have no context as to whether or not 
those are an individuals that are in a position to buy your services. Are they even interested in it? Do they have a legacy relationship? And it's Do they have a project coming up? <laughs> Absolutely. So we're seeing more and more brands embrace creative ways at their trade shows to produce what we refer to as marketing qualified leads. And that may be through the form of a survey or other type of event activation where there is some type of data exchange to alert the sales and marketing teams back home after the show as to which ones are the highest and best use of my time to follow up with and which ones, you know, I don't want to say aren't worth my time, but really aren't a priority right now. So my favorite story in those scenarios and, and the listeners uh, who are guilty of this, you know who you are, but what I love to watch is a firm throw up a booth, they have a fishbowl or something where people drop in business cards, they will go out and seek the owner that they're courting at the trade show, make sure that, you know, they bring him over to the booth, encourage him to drop his card in the bowl. And then miraculously, that is the card that gets pulled. Now, that's I would a qualified lead. <laughs> that's a sales so I will just say, for those of you who are guilty of that, um, I understand the logic. However, you are really, really doing yourself a disservice by not allowing your marketing teams to generate a process in which your target audience is lured to the booth on their own accord. While they're there, they're served up an entry form, which would you know, be usually in some form of survey or something in which you can solicit information that then can be, you know, analyzed and distributed to your sales team, whether that's a dedicated BD person or people or a group of seller doers that have the ability to say, this person answered these questions the following ways. Yes, I am planning a new or renovated facility in the next three years. No, I do not currently have an architect. Yes, I do have funding. That might be somebody you want to follow up with. And so, and that might be somebody that's really worthy of winning your prize, more so than the guy that you know that you have brought to your booth, forced him to drop a card in your bowl, and then <laughs> put on an Oscar-worthy you know, demonstration of, oh my gosh, you're the winner. So I think that, <laughs> I think that, that um, everyone listening that's been in our industry for some time and that have actually gone to trade shows know that this is stuff I cannot make up. This happens every day. And a lot of our listeners are probably guilty of it. Yeah. So, but what I'm seeing more and more of is trade shows are for the strangers, not for the people that you know. And the same is true of digital marketing. I have to share with you, Katie, that we recently launched a digital targeted campaign for one of our clients who's in the um, criminal justice uh, vertical. They provide a, a plethora of professional services in that vertical, and they were insistent that uh, your prison wardens and your um, your correctional officers and your Department of Corrections and your cities and counties that you know have jail projects that those people were not going to be able to be targeted online that they were not hanging out on LinkedIn and Facebook and 
Despite their doubts, they trusted us and they let us run a targeted digital campaign with a content offer. And within three days, they had generated 11 leads from the highest level decision makers in organizations where there were projects um, that required their services that they did not know about. And their entire ad spend was less than what they would have paid to take a client to lunch. I mean, I think that our industry feeling like marketing doesn't work for our industry, yet it works for every other industry, is incredibly naive. And I think that the savviest firms are starting to understand. They're not saying, you know, how does digital marketing work for an architecture firm? Or they're not saying, how does digital marketing work for a commercial contractor? We get all of our projects through relationships. The savviest firms are saying, how can it not? How can we be the only industry immune to this methodology? Every other industry out there, whether it's business to business or business to consumer, has found a way to generate leads online. Are you telling us we are so special that we cannot do that? And I think the savviest firms are, are starting to learn, no, not only can we do it, our chances of doing it yields even better results because there's not a lot of competition online. A lot of firms are not doing it right now. Five years from now, everybody will be doing it and the game will change once again. Yeah, I think that's, that's really true. Um, as we've seen this emergence and this kind of adoption of becoming more of a marketing-driven organization, some of the conversations that I have with, with our clients and, and these executives and principals from from architectural firms are really about okay so proposals are a necessary evil they're not going to go anywhere our clients are always going to ask us to respond uh to their their project solicitation so that that's not going to go anywhere we're always going to need this marketing coordinator but where the frustration happens is they're also asking these marketing coordinators to take on additional roles to you know implement these marketing tactics in addition to the proposal workload and we see one of two things happen you know one they don't have the bandwidth to do it all and in some cases you know the technology the the trends in social media and digital campaigns have advanced where they're a little bit behind the curve and they don't have the expertise to know how to execute it um, the other item of that is a number of marketing coordinators in our space unfortunately are not privy to the business level conversation in terms of what really drives revenue for the client, for their organization, um, sorry for that. And then also, you know, how does our firm make money? Who are the right type of clients for us to target? Who actually buys our services? You know, what does that buyer's journey look like for that healthcare executive that's looking to add an additional patient wing? They're, they're absent of that conversation and yet they are being given the responsibility to come up with a kitschy campaign, right? So. So there's a gap there. and I think Or there's a perception that because I have a new college graduate that, you know, grew up in the information age where, you know, social media was centric to their, you know, to their, um, to their life, that they automatically know how to apply using social media to my business. I think that that is a, an assumption that happens all the time. Let me find the youngest, most social media savvy person in my firm and say, hey, handle our social media for us. 
they're not looking at social media as a really, really powerful distribution channel um, to be able to drive their revenue. Exactly. Yes, those are, those are two big key areas that we see. And then the, the other thing that I think you and I see a lot is, I don't, I don't think I fully understand, th- these are coming from the principals and the executives, you know, they, I don't fully understand what, what that marketing looks like. I don't really know how to articulate that to my internal staff. I don't really even know how to hit go. And so there, there's a gap of understanding there as well. So, you know, Judy, I know that you've been on both the sales and marketing side. You've been in-house. You've been at the agency. We've worked with over 150 brands across North America. Like, let, let's dive into a little bit of this skills gap in, in terms of in-house marketing staff as well as the gap in understanding general marketing for most of our technical staff that are running these firms. I'm really glad you brought that up, Katie. And, and I, I think that it's so smart to recognize that the gap exists on both ends. So, you know, there is no question because marketing for as long as marketing has been happening in the AEC industry has been primarily focused on RFQs, RFPs, reactive type exercises that really take a lot of effort. I mean, it's very time consuming, especially if you have a, you know, a large um, amount of your work in the public sector where it is a, you know, a legally uh, binding requirement to publicly procure services. Uh, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. And so when an RFQ comes through the door, everything else stops. So what we find is that there's this large parking lot of items that never never really get, you know, addressed. So, you know, things like project photography and things like a social media plan and there, you know, marketing for forever has been just thought of as an overhead function. Now, to be fair, most principals in our industry are technically trained. So there are some companies out there that are led by MBAs and business people, but for the most part, your principals of your design firms and your construction firms and your engineering firms are in fact, you know, trained and educated and licensed to provide that trade. So they are licensed architects, licensed contractors, licensed engineers, and um, they don't really have adequate training in things like marketing. Um, And, but they are very, very smart and intuitive and, They've done very, you know, well for themselves um, in many cases. So it's never apparent to them that they themselves may have a skill gap. But how do you fill that gap? So I think with anything, if there's a gap in skill, you have to provide training. And what's interesting to me, um, and this is not a popular thing for me to say, but I'm going to say it because I think it needs to be heard, is that there's really not a great industry resource to teach marketing. There are professional organizations that are dedicated to marketing for professional services, and there are consulting groups out there that teach marketing best practices or presentation coaching. There are a lot of things available, but you know, I think anyone in our industry would, would admit that when it comes to marketing, our industry as a whole tends to be late adopters. So, you know, we learned that a long time ago, Katie, at our firm that, you know, we really want our people to grow as marketers, as data-driven 
evidence-driven, revenue-driving marketers. We want to teach that. We have to go outside the industry. Now, are they going to get a lot out of a large, you know, marketing conference that where the majority of the clientele, you know, might work for a soda company or might work for, you know, a con- some kind of consumer products company? Probably not. First of all, it's apples and oranges. The budgets are different. The objective is different. They're not going to get a lot out of that. It's However, like, it's like apples and tires. Like we're, we're, <laughs> we're, the same. we're not even this, we're not even produce, right? <laughs> so, well, um, so what we found at Smartagies has been really helpful for our young people is we teach the AEC side in-house. Um, that is something that you learn by doing it and being around others that have done it and working very collaboratively with your clients and being very intentional about training um, your non-technical professionals, you know, how you, how our clients make money, what matters to them, what do selection committees look for? We teach all of that. However, when it comes to what are the latest trends in using AI in your digital outreach and how do you, you know, use predictive, you know, marketing and generating leads online, you're not going to learn that from an industry resource because the industry hasn't been doing it. Uh, It's just recently that the industry has started to do these things. So where do we go to learn? We go to other B2B conferences. A lot of large business-to-business enterprises have marketers in-house that really are accountable for things like lead generation and conversions. And they have a process in place for the purpose of speed to market and scalability. So those are the things that when we see like the Siemens of the world being able to, you know, put a process and be able to um, put a process in place and be able to measure against that process and and provide training for their employees to be able to generate leads, manage the brand, you know, increase sales, all of those things, you have to think, well, those principles, well, and I'm using principles as in rules, not people, but those principles that work for those large B2B enterprises scaled appropriately down to my budget, those fundamental marketing principles should work for me. And what we have found is they do. So you and I have been to countless B2B conferences We've come back and we have helped our clients adopt account-based marketing strategies. And for those of you that are new to the acronym ABM or account-based marketing, um, it's basically an an idea that you want to take a very um, focused approach to uh, aiming at your highest value targets. And so this idea of I think that what's commonly used in our industry is, you know, we want a rifle approach, not a shotgun approach. So this idea that you are going to prioritize your targets and you're going to go an inch wide and a mile deep with every target, thereby increasing your hit rate and increasing your return and decreasing your spending overall. That is, um, you know, we used to call it back in the day, Katie, you and I, I think, coined the term competitive intelligence selling or competitive intelligence marketing. Well, you know, our counterparts in other B2B industries have really coined a better phrase and that's account-based marketing. And it basically is saying, I'm going to be very intentional and deliberate about marketing spend. 
that's the other thing that people do not measure in our industry. And I, it just, it blows my mind. Aside from labor, your largest cost is probably the cost of client acquisition. And very few principals, now I'm using principles, P-A-L, uh, really understand what they spend on marketing. They can measure the hard dollars, but they don't measure the time. If they understood how much an average lead costs to generate, if they understood how much an average project costs to acquire, this cost of client acquisition is really getting out of hand simply because owners are demanding a lot just to interview. And so you can't afford to go after 100 projects a year. You could go after 10, go after them well and win eight. Well, that is much better than going after 100 and winning two. Well, and what we're hearing day in and day out, you know, the right now the industry is really healthy in terms of the design and construction industry for the most part. And we hear our clients tell us all day, every day, I don't need more work. I need more people to do the work we have. And so they're being really, really thoughtful in terms of which projects and which clients they're actively pursuing and trying to find out what their ideal customer profile is, you know, which clients do we work well together? Which ones are we profitable on? Which ones can we have a long-term relationship with? And which ones, you know, do our staff really enjoy working with where we can, you know, retain our talented staff as we move forward? And those are kind of the qualifiers that they're using to build out their account-based marketing plans. That's right. I mean, if you think about it in the terms of, you know, it takes just as much effort to do a small project as it does to do a large project. Well, guess what? It takes just as much effort to sell to an owner who's going to have one project every 10 years or 20 years as it does to sell to a habitual buyer of design and construction. So be thoughtful. There might be a really nice project that you're qualified to do, but it's going to take a lot of energy and a lot of money to pursue it. And there's another project that, you know, or another client that, um, you know, is buying professional services on a weekly, biweekly, monthly, or annual basis, and there's no sign of that slowing down. Wouldn't your time be better spent investing in the habitual buyer of your services than the guy who's going to buy your services once every 20 years? Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I don't want to discourage listeners out there that are like, yeah, but what about that one marquee project happening in our back neighborhood that is only going to come around once in a lifetime? I mean, we heard about it, you know, here in Atlanta you know, when we, we thought Amazon was coming to Atlanta and everybody was all excited about it. And that was really never on anybody's ABM radar for that until, you know, became more reactive to it. Right. Those golden, I call those golden opportunities and they will, you will always need to leave some flexibility and be nimble enough to be able to pivot when the market calls for it. I think that that's just smart business. But in terms of 90% of your effort, you know, the way you act, the way you go to market, the way you spend, um, that needs to be premeditated and very, very strategic. Because if not, at the end of the day, you've, it's like doing marketing by trial and error. You know, nobody wants to lend money to somebody who says, I'm going to start a business without a business plan. Well, I, I am shocked how many firms do not even attempt to put a marketing or business development plan together every year, or they do it in such a rushed fashion just to, you know, make the higher ups happy. And then it sits on a shelf and they don't actually execute it. 
So I think that the firms that have gotten on board with the idea that, you know, the buying audience is getting younger, they uh, respond to different distribution channels. Um, My leadership is getting older and my second tier or succession plan um, is not going to come with the same level of relationships that I had when I started this firm. The competitive um, environment is very overcrowded due to the fact that there's just simply, you know, more firms than there ever have been for each discipline. And then on top of that, everybody's my competitor. You know, my two-man firm is competing with the 10,000-person firm, each with their own value propositions. But all of these factors, it's, just, it's gotten a lot tougher. And um, let me just say, if you're the firm whose aspirations are, listen, you know, my dad was an architect, I'm an architect, my son's going to be an architect, we've been a 20-person firm for 100 years, and, you know, we love our life, and this is really all we want to do, then do what you've been doing. Or, you know, maybe do what you've been doing in a little bit more. For those firms that are looking for, you know, exit strategies to be able to monetize at the end of your um, career, for those firms that are looking to scale in terms of going to new geographic markets or diversify into new verticals, marketing really needs to be a thoughtfully strategic driven process and adequately budgeted for. Absolutely. So for all of our listeners, you know, today, Judy and I have been talking about sales, marketing, and business development, what they all are, how they're used together to help drive business for your brand. So, you know, just to summarize, sales are things that are done one-to-one. Marketing are activities that are done one-to-many. Business development is just a very nice way of saying sales. And you need both in order to grow your brand and to effectively scale your business. We hope you've learned something from today's chat. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to look us up online. You can find us at smartagees.com or also on any of the social media channels at Smartagees. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you again soon. You've been listening to AEC Marketing for Principles, brought to you by Smartagees. If you like this episode, please let us know by visiting aecmarketingpodcast.com, where you can learn more ways to position your brand and sell to owners.